All right, John chapter 12. And as we saw a couple weeks ago in John chapter 12, again, 27 through 36, this is a passage that revolves around the cross of Christ, his coming death and his death that will take place in only four days from this moment. There's a transition that's taking place in John's gospel. As you reach the second half of John chapter 12, what you find is the final public address from Jesus to the crowds. He's been addressing the crowds all of his life. You see that in the synoptics. You see that in John's gospel all of his life. But now, as you come to this final half of this chapter, this is his final public address. In chapters 13 through 16, Jesus will speak specifically to his apostles. That's his farewell sermon, call it, but it's specific for his own. In chapter 17, Jesus will speak specifically to his father, offering his high priestly prayer for his people. But again, here, as verse 27 opens, you can even move it back to verse 23, you have the final words, Jesus will speak publicly. This is his final appeal. This is Monday of Jesus' Passion Week. He's in the temple. He has a captive audience. Why? He's just cleansed the temple, taking a stand against the religious leaders of the land. And so what is Jesus' message? What is his topic of choice for his final discourse? I just want you to notice he doesn't rail against Rome. And he doesn't turn his attack against Caesar or Pilate. He doesn't confront some social issue on the table. Why? Because Jesus understands this world is what? This world's passing away. So Jesus, out of everything he could say, everything he could say at this moment, what does he do? He proclaims his cross. He speaks of his imminent sacrifice. Because that, that is the most important message this crowd needs to hear. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has Come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How will he be glorified? He will be glorified by becoming, verse 24, a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. He proclaims his cross. Look at verse 32. If, better, when I am lifted up from the earth. How do we know that's the cross? Because verse 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. This is the final appeal. I'm going to die for the sins of my people. It's an imminent death. Look at verse 35. For a little while longer, it's only four days, for a little while longer, the light will be among you. The light of Christ will be extinguished soon. The darkness of death would engulf him. So what the Old Testament promised about the Messiah, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. This was the purpose for which Christ came. Mark 8, the Son of Man must suffer. And the verb there is divine necessity. This is of divine necessity for the Son of Man to suffer. He must suffer many things. He must be killed. 
This is why the universal symbol of Christianity is the cross. Jesus came to die. He came to die in only one way. This is why Paul declares, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And what about him? And him crucified. Him crucified, certainly encompassing his resurrection, his ascension, but all of that is wrapped up. Him crucified. We need to go to the cross. This is why the motto of Paul's life was this. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian gospel is the gospel of the cross. Now let me bring some application here. Are we cross-centered people? Are we cross-centered people? Let's put it a different way. Are we known for our commitment to Christ's cross more than anything else? So I think there might be a problem. Might be a problem if the world knows more about our political affiliations or the social issues we stand against, they know more about us in those areas than our commitment to the cross. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our motto. And just think about the cross. Think about how much of a paradox this is. How much the cross does not make sense to this world. The symbol of choice for Christianity is an execution stake. It's two pieces of wood designed by barbarians thousands of years ago. It was then taken over by the Greeks and the Romans because they saw in that cross, it was so cruel of an execution that they would adopt it for themselves, for their criminals. Dying on a cross was and still is the most horrifying form of death imaginable. It was deliberately designed to delay death, sometimes for days, so that the maximum amount of torture could be inflicted and the maximum amount of pain would be felt by the victim. There's physical pain all around, yet that pain is only paled by the shame the crucified victim experienced while he hangs high above the earth, stripped naked for all the world to see. One historian called crucifixion the utterly vile death of the cross. Another historian called it a most cruel and disgusting punishment. There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible of a deed. It was a form of execution the Romans reserved for only the lowest of criminals, only for slaves or foreigners. And yet this, this, is the symbol of choice for Christianity. It's the shameful, disgusting, cruel cross. So it's no wonder Paul writes, for the word of the cross is what? 
It's foolishness. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It makes no sense to the natural mind. The word foolishness there, it's the Greek word moria. It's moronic. The word of the cross is stupid, senseless. Senseless for an entire religion to unite around. In fact, this foolishness was vividly displayed in a picture graffitied on a wall during the second century. It was a kind of mural. This was a mural of a man stretched out on a cross, and notice he has the head of a donkey. Below the cross stands a man. His arms are raised, offering the crucified donkey worship. And under this picture is the description, Alex worships God. Second century. It's a cartoonish picture meant to symbolize Jesus, the donkey, dead on a cross. His followers foolishly offering him praise. He was drawn to heap disgrace and ridicule upon the Christians of the day. This picture is meant to ask the question, who in the right mind would worship a crucified Savior? Who in their right mind would worship a crucified dead God? The word of the cross has always been foolishness to those who are perishing. But how does that verse end? But to us. But to us who are being saved... This cross is the power of God. Foolishness to the world, stupidity to the world. Yet to us who see the glory of the cross, the glory of the person hanging on the cross, this cross possesses the power that nothing else can possess. This is the power to exalt God's grace, to showcase his love and his mercy. Christ's cross can do what nothing else can do. That's the point of our passage. And Jesus here takes a step back, final appeal to the crowds, and he highlights the power of his cross. For three years, he has predicted his cross. John 2, John 3, John 6, 8, 10. But now Jesus turns from the physical details of his death. Now he explains the spiritual effects of his death. Exactly what he will accomplish in only four days. Here's how we're breaking it up. We're seeing seven effects of Christ's powerful cross. Seven effects of Christ's powerful cross. Why the motto of our life must be we boast in the cross. Why the world must know our commitment to the cross more than anything else. We looked at the first two effects last time. Effect number one, Christ's cross had the power to trouble the Savior's soul. Christ's cross has the power to trouble the Savior's soul. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul has become troubled. I'm perplexed, Jesus says, agitated on the inside Why? Because Christ knows what's coming. He knows that his fellowship with his father would soon be lost. 
He knows the light of his father's love for him would soon be eclipsed by the darkness of his father's wrath. We unpack this in some detail. This is not weakness on Jesus' part. This is strength, strength of divine holiness. He hates what he knows must happen to him if forgiveness is going to be offered. Fellowship must be forfeited with his father. Sin must be credited to his account if sinners are going to be saved. This is why Jesus is trembling. Yet still, despite the inner agony of knowing what's coming, how does Christ respond? Verse 27, in faith, in obedience. What shall I say? Jesus asks, Father, save me, deliver me, rescue me from this hour, but no, 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 for this purpose, for this purpose, I came to this hour. Troubled soul of Christ, because of the cross, quickly turns into submissive obedience to walk to the cross. Christ's cross has the trouble, has the power to trouble the Savior's soul, because Christ knows what will happen when he hangs on those two pieces of wood. This led into effect number two. Effect number two, Christ's cross has the power to display the Father's glory. To display the Father's glory. Notice Jesus' prayer of submission in verse 28. Father, here's my one request. Don't save me from the cross. No, glorify your name. Put me on the cross. Put me there because that is where you will be most glorified. That is where your attributes will be best seen. I'm going to magnify your love on the cross. I'm going to demonstrate your grace. I'll reveal your holy hatred against sin. I'll validate your righteousness. Put me on the cross. Glorify your name. And this is one of those paradoxes of Christianity. God's glory is not best seen in Shekinah light bursting forth. No, God's glory is most clearly seen on a shameful cross. Father answers the son's prayer in verse 28. A voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Remain the course, son. Remain the course. I know your soul is troubled, you're repelled by the thought of what is coming. Continue the course for it will be on the cross where you will culminate your work in bringing me glory. The promise is I will, on that cross, I will glorify my name. This brings us to effect number three. Effect number three, we'll look at the next three this morning. Effect number three, Christ's cross has the power to expose the spiritual condition of every man. Christ's cross has the power to expose the spiritual condition of every man. At this point in the story, the people are confused. They have no idea what they've heard. God has spoken. But notice verse 29. The crowd of people who stood by and heard it, heard the voice, were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. The crowd's bewildered right now. 
The key here is this. No one in this crowd thought that they had heard the Father's voice. No one. Some can only explain it away. It must have been thunder. It must have been thunder. Natural phenomenon. Others heard something, maybe words, something there. They think it's an angel. Supernatural in character, yes. But no one in the crowd thinks it was God who spoke. So why does John record this detail? Well, John's showing us just how far Israel had drifted from their God. Look back at verse 12. This is when Christ entered Jerusalem as that humble king. Remember, he comes into town. He is praised. The crowd sees Jesus. They think he is coming as a conquering king to defeat Rome. But no, he's coming as that humble, sacrificing king to defeat sin. They've drifted. They do not have eyes to see the glory of their Messiah. He's in their midst. They don't see him. And now as you move into verse 28 and 29, not only are Israel's eyes spiritually blinded to the glory of their Messiah, but now we see their ears are also spiritually deaf to the Father. They hear God speak, but they do not perceive any of it as God's voice. Was it thunder? Was it an angel? They have blind eyes. They have deaf ears. Look down to verse 40. Here's John's summary of Israel. Verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive here with their heart. That's a summary statement. This is how far Israel has drifted. They don't see their Messiah. They don't hear their father. They don't perceive. They don't believe. They've rejected Jesus' words about his person, Rejected that he has claimed to be God's son. They've rejected Jesus' teaching about his cross. It's the necessary sacrifice for sin. They don't even see their need for it. And now a turning point, they have rejected the father's confirmation, his words, his confirmation of both. And so verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice, it wasn't thunder, This voice, my father's voice, has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. God has spoken to confirm who I am, that I am his son who is about to be raised upon a tree. God has spoken to confirm that what I just said about my cross is true. It will be the culmination of the father's glory. But because of the hardness of your heart, Jesus says, because of the deafness of your ears, you've missed all of it. You have no capacity to understand the gospel I have proclaimed. You have no ears to hear the message of my Father. The word of the cross is the word of Christ and the word of the Father. Let's put it in Paul's terms. The word of the cross was foolishness to this crowd. Foolishness. 
Christ's gospel, the cross gospel, is not what this crowd wanted to hear. What did they want to hear? Defeat Caesar. Overthrow Rome. Christ says, I'm come to defeat sin. They don't want it. And so what's the result then of man's blindness to the cross? What's the result of their deafness to the gospel, the rejection of the cross? Look at verse 31. Here's the result. Jesus says, now, because of your final unbelief, now judgment is upon this world, referring to the unbelieving world, sinners. Now judgment is upon this world. That's a shift. What is Jesus saying here? It's this. Where Christ's cross is not believed, only divine judgment awaits. Where Christ's cross is not perceived, salvation will not be experienced. He's saying there's going to be a separation. There is a separation. It's the word judgment, chrysis. It means to separate or to distinguish Another way you can put it, there's division. The world, humanity is divided by the cross. Because it is the cross that exposes the spiritual condition of every man. It is the cross that does that. One's response to Christ's death either unmasks them as a child of Satan or identifies them as a child of God. It hinges on the cross. It's true, the cross of Jesus does unite. We're a living example of that, aren't we? The cross unites. Unites men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Even more than that, it unites sinners to God. He unites the unworthy to every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, but the cross also divides, it separates. It divides the saved from the unsaved. It separates those who will be accepted by the Father from those who would be rejected by the Father. It distinguishes those who will receive God's mercy and those who will experience God's anger. It splits heaven and hell. This is what the final judgment, great white throne, the final judgment, the final separating act by God, it will be what it is based upon primarily, one's response to Christ's cross. So again, let's bring some application to us. The gospel, the gospel has not been proclaimed until the cross has been explained. Say it again. The gospel, full gospel, has not been proclaimed until the cross has been explained. It goes back to how we began. Do people know us for our commitment to the cross? The gospel is not proclaimed when we tell somebody we are a Christian, though that is fine to do, and that's a great bridge, do it. The gospel is not proclaimed when we live a life of integrity, gospel is not proclaimed when we invite someone to a church gathering. Why? Because only the cross divides. 
Only cross separates the believer from an unbeliever. Only the cross is God's instrument of salvation. The cross is the power of God. Only the cross can break the hardened heart of the sinner. Only the cross can expose the extent of one's sinfulness before God. All hinges in Christ's death. Only the cross can display the full anger of God against sin. Even if sin is credited to his son's account, God must punish it. Only the cross can convince sinners of their need for forgiveness. That nothing less than the death of the God-man can pay for your sin. That nothing short of the death of the eternal second person of the Trinity can exhaust God's wrath against sin. That nothing less than the sacrifice of the perfect man can reconcile you to the Father. Only the message of the cross can convince sinners of their need of salvation. This is the power of Christ's cross. It exposes the spiritual condition of every man. Leads into a fourth effect of Christ's cross. Effect number four. Christ's cross has the power to dethrone Satan's rule. Christ's cross has the power to dethrone Satan's rule. Notice what Jesus says next. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Not only will Christ endure God's anger and wrath against sin for all who will believe and be saved, but on the cross, Jesus here is promising that he will actually defeat the prince of sin. He's talking about Satan here. He uses the word ruler. Ruler, archon. Uh, Translate it this way. Now the sovereign of this world. Or this, the king of this world. This is eminence. This is lordship. Paul picks up on the same terminology in Ephesians 2. He calls Satan the prince, the archon, the the ruler of the power of the air. Jesus is emphasizing here Satan's supernatural strength and mastery. His power and control. And where does Satan enjoy this realm of rule? Jesus describes it as the world, not a reference to our planet. It's not the point here, it's not our planet. The phrase the world refers to the invisible kingdom of sin that permeates our planet. It's the evil world system that has reigned ever since the fall of man. Every person begins life as a citizen of Satan's kingdom. Every person is born under the domain of darkness, Colossians 1, the authority of the darkness of sin. Listen to John writes in 1 John. The whole world, again, referring to that evil world system 
of corruption. The whole world lies in the power, under the dominion, the reign of the evil one. This is just a graphic title, the ruler of this world. It's graphic. It emphasizes sinful man's helplessness under Satan's dominance. It shows us that our life, when we enter this evil world system, is ruled spiritually by an evil dictator. And the problem is we are powerless to break free, powerless. Well, it seems hopeless, but what does Jesus say that he will do at his cross? He will not only defeat sin, but he will defeat Satan. He'll conquer Satan. He will, verse 31, cast, it's a strong word, ekbalo, throw him, drive him, remove him out. Literally, it's even more. Here's a literal translation. It's just redundant, but it's emphasis. The ruler of this world will be thrown out outside. He's not even going to be close anymore, just thrown out and outside. What's coming is finality. It's going to be a decisiveness of Christ's victory. Amazing, at the cross, that shameful cross. At the cross, Jesus will wrench away all the power Satan possesses, and he will dethrone Satan from his ruling throne. Christ is promising defeat in every possible way of this rival king. I think Jesus is showing that that first gospel proclamation in Genesis 3 is going to be fulfilled. Remember when God says that there's going to be coming seed, a coming seed that will what? Crush Satan on the head. It's going to be a death blow. That's the promise. Now understand, this defeat of Satan has two installments, two installments. One that we enjoy now and one yet to come. The first installment of Jesus casting Satan out was exactly what happened on the cross when he paid the full penalty of sin. At that point, he defangs Satan by releasing us from sin's guilt. There's nothing Satan can do at this point. It's Hebrews 2. Through death, Christ rendered powerless him, Satan, who had the power of death. Not that Satan can kill anyone. That's not the point. But he renders powerless Satan who had the power of death. What kind of power of death? The power to to make us fearful of death. We'd be fearful of sin's guilt and all those consequences. That's verse 15. He's freed those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We're under guilt, confined by our guilt and sin. But now that Christ pays the penalty, we no longer need to fear death. Sin's been paid for. There's no more guilt, no condemnation for those in Christ. Not only that, he also frees us, not only from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin. The power of sin. We're no longer citizens of Satan's kingdom. We've been freed from the domain of darkness, transferred in the kingdom of God's beloved son. He's given us his spirit. We can live righteously. 
We can live righteously, say no to sin, yes to righteousness. That's why John writes, 1 John 3, the Son of God appeared for this purpose. What's the purpose? Why does the Son of God appear? Here it is, to destroy the works, to disarm the power, to break the chains of the devil. Satan roams this world, yes. He's still active today, yes. Many, many years ago, I was talking about Second Peter, I believe, and I said that Satan is like a lion and he's roaming to see who he can devour. He wants to devour, and instead of saying our faith, I said he wants to devour our face. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, Five years ago, I said it. It still comes up in conversation today. Hey, remember when you said Satan wants to devour our face? He's still roaming. He wants to devour our faith. He's causing great havoc, yes, but he's a defeated foe. He has no grip upon the believer. His power has been broken. His accusing tongue has been defanged. He's been cast from his throne. Well, because of the work of Christ on the cross. So that's the first installment of Christ's defeat of Satan. There's a second installment. Second installment of Christ's victory. That is still to come. And that is when Satan will be physically removed from this world. When he will be cast into eternal punishments. He'll be first thrown into the abyss. We read that in Revelation 20. Remember, John wrote Revelation. He uses the same language. Revelation 20, verse 2 Satan will be bound for a thousand years and thrown. Balo. It's the same word, just without the prefix. He'll be thrown into the abyss, which will then be followed. By Revelation 20, verse 10, when the devil will be thrown, same word, he'll be thrown, cast, driven into the lake of fire and brimstone and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He'll be defeated in principle, first installment, defanged of all power, of all threats to the believer, and then defeated forever in the second installment, thrown into outer darkness. One commentator writes this. At the cross, Christ would secure not only the salvation of God's people, that's the first installment, but also the destruction of his arch enemy. That's the second installment. This is the power of the cross. It has the power to do what nothing else can do. It has the power to dethrone Satan's rule. And notice Jesus' words here again. There's no doubt. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind that this is going to happen. It's a promise. Verse 32, the ruler of this world will be, future tense. Here's the promise. This is coming. He will be cast out dethroned. Leads into a fifth effect. 
Effect number five of Christ's cross, what only Christ's cross can accomplish. Christ's cross has the power to change a sinner's heart. Christ's cross has the power to change a sinner's heart. Remember, this is Jesus' final appeal. And he gives a promise in verse 32, and I If I am lifted up, this is not his ascension, this is not his resurrection, certainly including that because it's going to follow the cross, but specifically, this is his suspension above the earth on two pieces of wood. Again, 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And what does Jesus promise here? When I hang on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. This is the promise of salvation. Two key phrases. The first is draw. Draw. This is used by Jesus throughout John's gospel to refer to a supernatural work that must be done. Supernatural work that must be done if a sinner is going to come to Christ in saving faith. We can't come to Christ on our own. We're spiritually dead. So something must happen. Jesus says that is the word draw. That's the work of God. John 6, no one can come to me in faith. No one can. No one can come to me in faith unless the Father, same word, draws him. Jesus is promising a change of heart. If I'm lifted up, there will be a change of heart. There will be a conversion. There will be regeneration God will grant repentance so that that sinner can turn from sin and faith to turn to Christ. This word draw is used for Peter casting his fishing net, dragging his catch to shore. That's what must happen if one is going to come to Christ in saving faith. He must be caught by God. He must be drawn to Christ. That's only a work that God can do. Only God can perform this. You read throughout John, the father draws the sinner. We just read that. Here, notice who's going to do the drawing. I will draw to myself. Christ will draw the sinner. And then John 6, the spirit regenerates. He draws the sinner from sin to salvation. It's the promise when I'm raised up, the Trinity will be at work in the salvation of souls. The point is simply this. There's no access to God apart from Christ's cross. No access, no drawing. The sinner is only drawn to Christ when the crucified Jesus is proclaimed. Again, The application, the full gospel is not proclaimed unless the cross is explained. There's a second important phrase, though, that Jesus adds here. It's the phrase, all men. I will draw all men to myself. This is not universalism. It's not that every single individual in the world will be saved. That's not the promise. The idea of all men is the sense of all kinds of people. Just look around. There's all kinds of people here. It's the point. All kinds of people. All men. Remember the context. Look up to verse 20. 
Remember what's sparking this final declaration from Jesus. Greeks now, verse 20, Greeks have come to him there in search of Christ. Christ promises them salvation. The Greeks, that's unheard of in the Jewish culture. That sparks us all men. The promise, my death will be broad. It will reach every culture and gender. It will have a disregard for every social status or economic level. My gospel, my cross will be colorblind to all nationalities. It'll be broad. But his cross will also run deep. It will reach to even the lowest of sinners. It'll reach the religious legalists like Nicodemus. It'll reach the most Christ-hating persecutor like Paul. No sin can stay God's saving grace and drawing hand. And that's the promise Christ makes. Lift me up and salvation is accomplished. It's not just a plan. Salvation is accomplished. J.C. Ryle writes this. How thoroughly this prophecy has been fulfilled for 18 centuries. At this point, we can add it. 21 centuries. The history of the church is abundant proof. Whenever Christ crucified has been preached and the story of the cross fully told, souls have been converted and drawn to Christ. Just as iron filings are drawn to a magnet in every part of the world. No truth so exactly suits the one of all children of Adam, of every color, climate, and language as the truth about Christ crucified. And the prophecy is not yet exhausted. It shall yet receive a more complete accomplishment. He that was lifted up on the cross shall yet sit on the throne of glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. Friends and foes, each in their own order shall be drawn from their graves and appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let us take heed in that day that we are found on his right hand. Have we bowed the knee before the crucified Savior? The power of Christ's cross is unmatched. It breaks the hardest of hearts. It offers the most glorious of hopes. It is foolishness, yes. It always has been, though. It's foolishness to the world, but it is the power of God unto salvation. May the motto of our life, there could be many, many mottos out there. We're drawn in so many different directions. May the motto of our life be the same as the Apostle Paul. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we love the cross. May we give thanks because of the cross. May we boast only in the cross. May we approach the Father boldly through the cross. May we sing praises for the cross, speak of the cross, but may we also be known more than anything else. May, be, may we be known for our faith in the cross, our commitment to the cross of Christ. We'll pick it up there next week. Father, you have given us a very visible display 
of just how glorious you are. And again, it was not in the bursting light of your Shekinah glory. It was the glory that was seen when darkness fell upon Christ. When he was forsaken by you, when sin was credited to his account, when punishment poured out upon him, there is the greatest display of your glory. Your mercy, your love, your grace, your righteousness, your holiness. Father, may we be humbled under the cross of our Savior. And may we be known for our commitment to the crucified and resurrected Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.